Hello, thanks for stopping by Liberty For Her, where we unpack one woman's entrepreneurial journey to help another woman launch her own. I'm your host, Netta Jones. We're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty for Her. And today you get a double dose of um, inspirational wisdom from both Chelsea and Jamie, the founders of Sugar Paper. And many of you probably heard their startup and partnership story back in episode 88. And if you didn't, please refer to that episode because there's lots of good tidbits and tools and resources. Um, Just in hearing their story, I have often referred partners who've come to me both from a consulting point of view or just a DM question about partnerships. I refer them to that episode because it was such a profound episode on what it takes to run a business as partners and the mutual respect and the hard work that went into building that partnership. So that's quite a lead-in, ladies. Um, let me first start by saying thank you for making time for us this morning. Thank you for inviting us. Hi, Netta Jones. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Chelsea. Hi, Jamie. Hi. Hey, um, we're going to spend some time talking about retail specifically. And in this season, you guys are outliers in that you sort of hit all the different retail channels. You hit both brick and, well, not both, you hit all brick and mortar, you hit direct to consumer, you wholesale, you have a target partnership. There's so many things about what you guys do that I love that we're including you in this conversation because I think there's there's lots that we can learn from you. But first, just give those people who've been living um, under a rock just a, a little bit of information about what Sugar Paper is. Sure. Well, I'll go. So Sugar Paper is 18 years old this year. We started, our roots are in brick and mortar. So we started with a store on a little street in Los Angeles with that being the entire intention of the goal of the company is to run a beautiful stationary store. We've changed to become an omni-channel stationary and lifestyle brand. So we make stationary, we'll always be true to those roots, but um, we also make products that we never imagined we would make. So things like staplers and cell phone cases and just extensions of kind of what you would find on the desk. But, but most, mostly we stay true to our stationary roots. And Jamie, maybe you could help us understand when Chelsea says omni-channel, for those who um, are hearing that term for the first time, what does that include for you guys? What are the various models that make up omni-channel? Omni-channel is having different sales channels. So Ours started with our retail locations. Then we went to wholesale. So we sell directly to other stores. And kind of at the same time, I think we started the online store. So direct to consumer. Mm-hmm. And then the collaborations and licensing is is another channel. So really we have four. And for us, it really happened organically. We started in retail. And as we like expanded what we were making, we expanded the channels. Was there one in particular that came right after 
brick and mortar that you thought, okay, that's the direction we need to go in partnership with brick and mortar, or that's the one we need to go to sort of spread our wings and expand how we can um, connect with a broader consumer group? I think there's two answers to that question. So the first one, because we had a retail location and we were buying things from third-party vendors Mm -hmm. and we were engaging with the customers and hearing things that they needed or wanted, and we were like, wow, we're doing this custom letterpress stationery and wedding invitations. Why don't we make this Mazel Tov card that everybody seems to want? Or why don't we make this birthday card? So that kind of started us with dabbling with making product. And then that evolved into, if we're going to make the product, why don't we sell the product to other stores like these vendors are doing for us? I think around the same time was when, Chelsea you started playing with Instagram and the online store. And I think that was more to connect with an outside audience. I think it was mandatory for a lot of the press opportunities that were presented to us. So it kind of happened at the same time. I joke sometimes that we have the Hansel and Gretel model of business. So you just followed one crumb led to the next crumb, which led to the next crumb. So nowadays it's interesting. I have a lot of founder friends and they showed up to the table. They knew they were going to become a DTC brand. They had a very clear intention. That is not how we did this. So I want to be really clear about that, that we were, we tried a thing and then we tried the next thing, but it really, I think to answer your question, Netta, it happened because customers asked us for the next thing. And mm-hmm. so then we, we would co- have a conversation between the two of us and we would say, well, I don't know, let's try that. And then we would see the response. So, you know. Yeah, I, I appreciate that answer. That, and I like the Hansel and Gretel model. Um, I, I, you guys should... Um, trademark that and do something. That's your next book. But because I think so many of us go into a situation and we sort of push in or lean into what we think the consumer wants. And often it's not until we wait to hear what they want from us and how they want to use us. And it could be us, you know, specific to your brand, or it could be given our time coming out of COVID now, it could be a response to their appetite and habits and shifts in in trends that have happened, whether it's in the actual product or the way we consume that product or purchase that product. So I think there's a lot of wisdom actually into going into something and seeing where that next crumb leads. Um, So thank you for permission to build a Hansel and Gretel model. I have a question because as somebody who was a sugar paper I should say, is a sugar paper customer. So much of my experience of the brand is going into the brick and mortar space and uh, experiencing all things that come with that. How did you guys sort of control that when you were starting to sell wholesale and starting to do different partnerships and collaborations where some of that was out of your hands? Well, I think the brick and mortar channel always, you know, was where we were able to learn. So like you just previously said, where we were able to hear like customers feedback and what they liked and how they engaged with the product or how they used it, I feel like is really still the the most valuable information that guides our work. Sorry to interrupt. I I was going to say, I do think that's our competitive advantage and always Mm. has been, is that we started in retail. We started 
as two founders who worked inside the store. We never, when, when we began, it was she and I and our customers. And so we always heard from our customers what they liked and what they didn't like, what was missing, what wasn't selling. It was just laying on the table, right? So if you take it back to distilling it down, our competitive advantage is that we listen, we have an empathetic approach to what mm-hmm. we do and what we make. Oh, okay. Can you I, go into the empathetic approach? I love that. What do you mean when you say that, Chelsea? Well, I mean, I think the original question, right, was how do we control it when we expand? Yeah. yeah. I think anytime we're having a conversation about our retail store or our wholesale model or our licensing partnerships, we distill it back to what does the customer want in this situation instead of what do we want? What does the partner want? We want to have a conversation about an empathy for the customer. So the customer has asked us, I'm going to give you a bad example, but the customer is saying to us, I really love these planners. I really wish someone would make a solid instead mm-hmm. of a pattern. So mm-hmm. we're, we're listening all the time to what the customer wants, and then we go to make the product. We don't make the product and then hope they like it. it right. it's, a, it's a kind of an opposite model. Similarly, we had an experience in Target where we don't control the customer service, and we had something happen where a lot of customers were disappointed And we saw that as an opportunity to bring empathy to the table and to say, okay, the reality is we do not control 1,800 Target stores. We cannot help you in this moment, but we can hear you. We can collect a list of people who are disappointed. We can provide that list to Target, and we can figure out maybe a solution that they would be willing to work with us on. So even when our hands are tied, we try to bring it back to empathy, customer service, which goes back to the roots of just being on a small street in Los Angeles and having a handful of customers. Something that you're saying about that reminds me of our earlier conversation pre-pandemic, which now seems like a lifetime ago. But you guys talked about, you didn't use the word empathy, I don't think, but you talked about having a heart and having that heart in your team, not just between the two of you. So it seems very core to the business, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that you guys are really leading with that, like really wanting people to love the place they work, really wanting people who are entering into the sort of sugar paper world to love their experience and then listening with that same loving slash empathetic ear towards creating things that are consumer centric and not just what did Jamie and Chelsea feel like doing today? Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, I just got off a marketing call and one of the new frontiers of marketing is SMS marketing text, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I feel really weird about it because I'm not sure people want a text from Sugar Paper. That said, every founder friend I know is saying, you know, it's fantastic. You have to do it. And so we had a conversation. So going back to the, the team side, we had a conversation about what is this platform going to be used for? So we think if someone is going to give us permission to, to text them, that this should be a super secret private opportunity for them, whether it's first access to a book or a special sale or a gift with purchase, that we can 
play in that space as long as we're choosing to surprise and delight mm. people. Mm. But just to spam people is not an option for the type of brand that we've created. So there are a lot of conversations about this, even in meetings. It's part of the dialogue. Sure. And it seems like knowing always where you guys come from and what you want to put out is what's helping to make those decisions. Because there's always going to be a bright, shiny marketing opportunity, right? And I have to believe that companies that don't know kind of their soul get stuck or get trapped into those situations because they go they they go into them thinking this is going to be um, the silver bullet only to find out that it's sort of imploded. It's a disconnect between the customer and what they've come to expect from a brand. And, and it becomes a pain point, right? So yeah. it actually tarnishes your loyalty to a brand instead of building it. So if right. all of a sudden one of my favorite brands is hammering me with text, I might decide to unsubscribe and not be as loyal to that yeah. brand. So it can backfire on you. Yeah, I was going to add to that. The other um, guiding principle, I think, that's part of this conversation is quality. So as, as long as the products we buy and the stores, the products we make, no matter where we're expanding to, are good quality, I feel like mm. it gives us permission. Like if we can make it and we can make it well and we're excited to use it, that like helps guide our decisions. Well, and I think... To build on that, Jane, one of the, we were really nervous when we partnered with Target because we have a luxury brand yeah. that we make a luxury product in a very high-end neighborhood. And so we, we were nervous of what that transition would look like. Mm. And the rule that she and I established was as long as the product is good, we can stand for it. And on top of that, we can feel good about making the product available to a wider audience. So yeah. I think we're, we're very thoughtful in the choices we make. Um, and maybe overly that, thoughtful. <laughs> that also is like, I, I think, adds to us being loyal to our consumers. Yeah. You know, like if they can, they can know they can trust us to put something quality. So whether they're buying it from Target or the store or the website, that that is consistent. Absolutely. And and I appreciate the dilemma of both wanting to ensure that the customers who've paid for that high-end product, their money went towards buying that quality exclusive thing and it wasn't diminished by working with somebody like a Target. But in fact, like how great that so many people got to experience and give gift sugar paper who d don't have access to your store in Los Angeles who don't have access to even from a price point point of view. So I appreciate that you guys are walking that fine line for so many reasons, but I also understand the dilemma that it is for a business. And you guys have seemed to have navigated it well. Were there some early learnings in that? Or did you kind of just say, well, we're going to stick to making a good quality product and we're gonna, just going to keep going forward? And everything was wonderful? Or was there like a, oh, man, this was tough. Maybe we shouldn't have done this. You know, I mean, actually, I think we learned to loosen up a little bit. In the mm. beginning, we were like, you know, white knuckling this decision, worried that it, it could upset people. And I think what we've learned is how fun it is to play in both spaces. Yeah. And that it's really fun when you can make a product 
the quality that you would dream of because there's a consumer who will pay a higher price. So every detail of every, you know, piece of paper, of fabric, of everything is considered. And that's our high-end line. And then the target line, we get to make something that's really, really beautiful and really, really affordable. And so I've come to, like, Jamie's watched me loosen up because I used to be so, you know, spun out about not upsetting either audience. And now I just think it's delightful to play in both places. Well, and I think to add to that, we get to play. So we get to make things that we haven't made before or potentially expand an offering like the holiday gift wrap collection. We had never done gift boxes and all the ribbons and all the toppers. And so getting to have a collection with so many SKUs was fun. Like we aren't going to yeah. make this internally, so let's play here. Yeah, what a nice space for you guys! Like just mentally, as creators, to be able to have that outlet. Just give us quickly what were your respective backgrounds before launching Sugar Paper? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I laugh at this question because we were babies, so we had jobs, but nothing in this capacity. Sure. I worked in entertainment. I was the second assistant to a really powerful person. But when I think about what that experience taught me is that I knew what it was like to deal with very high profile people. Mm. I knew what needed to happen in terms of the way the messaging was delivered. I knew that there was a sense of urgency. I knew that there was a high level of expectation of how people were treated. So I think about that all the time when I think about how we treat our customers, how we walk into a business meeting. Again, that you have to be very respectful of people's time. You have to show up as a professional. So there was a lot of learnings there, but I don't know if I would have said they were like directly transferable. How about you, Jamie? (laughs) Well, I was straight out of school. So I think it was like finishing at UCLA at the same time we started. Chelsea was a year ahead of me. And so for, for me, I mean, I had an art bra- background and that translated into graphic design, but it was the fact that it needed to be my livelihood. I was, yeah. I was taking a risk to, to do this project with Chelsea. So. So, so then I think the learnings would have come from, if you're saying 18 years, it's like every five years you've learned from the last five years, like you're sort of like building upon the experience of the early sugar paper to build the sugar paper that is now. Is that is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I think in the beginning, like you said, we kept adding, right? We kept picking mm-hmm. up the next crumb. And so I think, you know, these past five years have been organizing what we already started. <laughs> okay. So that means there were 13 years of unorganization or does that mean that no, you just building, grew so building. much? Okay. Building. Okay. Yeah. The unorganization answer is a good one too. Cause there's so many entrepreneurs who are listening to this that are like, okay, I've been sort of chasing my own tail for so many years. When do I stop and get organized? And I appreciate what you're saying. And Jamie, I know we've had conversation before about just how Uh, involved in the organization you both are in terms of really taking back the accounting and the, you know, having professionals work with you guys at uh, areas that they're more skilled at than you, because you guys are the founders and you owe it to 
to main, to the business to maintain that visionary sort of level, but also being very intentional and involved about everything that's happening in the business so that you're really pulling everything out of the business. You're sort of milking everything for all the effort that you're putting into it. You're getting the most out of it and not leaving that to third parties. Yeah. Did you learn that the hard way? We did. Yeah. And so there are good lessons. Well, I think that. I think the lesson was um, for a long time we thought, well, if, if it's not our strength, you you hire out for that. You hire out yeah. for that, and that's often the advice that you hear: mm-hmm. play to your strengths and hire out for it. I think, unfortunately, what we learned the hard way was that you also, when when you're hiring out for that, you are the expert of your business. Mm-hmm. That they can give you maybe accounting support, but you actually need to know when that support is showing up for you, how to differentiate the advice from the reality. And I think, unfortunately, there were times that we would allow the expert to be the expert out of respect for their role. And we learned, unfortunately, that, no, we actually need to have a strong voice in all of those conversations. And And so- also a level of not wanting to deal with it, right? Mm, Finances yeah. seemed hard. We thought someone knew better than us, so and we kind of didn't want to deal with it. And I think once we embrace that, no, one of us has to have our hand on finances, one of us has to have our hand on marketing, we both have our hands on design, you know, kind of the big brand leaders, it just improved, so I think sure. for so long, we were thinking we could do it better by finding a new person. And then after years, we were like, oh, no, that's us with help. And that that takes that takes sort of a level of maturity in your own business. Like you talked about being babies, right? So you're bringing in these experts out of respect and deference to what they know that you don't know. You're leaning into whatever they have to offer. Having said that, you're at the same time simultaneously, you're growing with your business and you're learning more about what it is and what it isn't. And you become an expert in your business as it grows. Unfortunately, we're not experts at those businesses in the beginning. We come to know them as we've spent time with them and we understand the market and we understand the consumer. So it makes sense that at some point you guys stopped and said, wait a minute, this is our responsibility. I did a podcast a few weeks ago where we were just giving some launching advice. And I said, when you go out and hire these different experts, just be clear that just because you've handed off the bookkeeping or the accounting doesn't mean it's no longer your business. Your business is in fact your business. And so I appreciate what you're saying about both learning the hard way, but then also coming to a point where you're, you leaned back in and said, we're responsible for all the things, not just the high-level visionary things, not just the design and the aesthetic and the brand, but we're responsible for the getting in the weeds and really understanding how our business runs. What roles did you each play when you launched the company? And then what roles do you each play now? Jamie, go first. Well, when we first launched the company, we were working the store. So we both worked the store and we both did the design and we both did the printing. So I think that was more of a manpower dividing and conquering. Yeah, all Um, hands on deck. Yeah, all hands on deck. 
And now currently we, we share all the design product development um, and have a really good synergy with that and bouncing off each other to make sure that things are good. We like them enough building collections. Um, I'm a little more involved in finance inventory and some of the retail stuff. And Chelsea really is the voice of the brand, the marketing, a lot of the photo direction. So it's really kind of, we both are managing the brand. We just have different things we take lead on, but we bounce a lot off of each other. So it's a blurred, blurred answer, I guess. Blurred answer. No, it's, it's good. Chelsea, do you want to add to that? Like how the roles are distinct now from where they started? No, I mean, I would just say what she said. So we started, we were very young. There is this funny story where I convinced her to do this business and she was like, absolutely not. You're insane. So (laughs) I guess in that capacity, I was the one that was leading the charge and that has flip-flopped over the years. And, and each of us takes lead at different times. I would say Jamie is, is taking lead right now. And that goes back to the data driving a lot of Mm. our decisions. So Mm. again, about getting organized, we now you know, we, we look at the numbers before we make a decision. So whether that's which part of the business we want to grow, we look at the math. Or what products we want to make, we look at the math. And so Jamie's constantly bringing that conversation to any creative meeting. And it's so wonderful. It's, it's nice that you guys have had the elasticity to go back and forth and to each take the lead in um, respective areas. Were those organic? Did you sit down and say, okay, you're going to take the lead here and I'm going to take the lead here? Or were they sort of directed by your your strengths and your appetite for certain things and you, you fell into those roles? Yes. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> yes. both. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't tend to take lead on podcasts. She does, but Every every <laughs> once in a while, you get me, <laughs> and I'm so and, glad that we do. <laughs> and and I tend to open a spreadsheet more often, but I think that has evolved over the years and just our strengths, and also just organically what what the business needs. What the sure. business needs, yeah, yeah, sure. This is a conversation that I've been having more and more with entrepreneurs and a question that I wanted to ask you each. So you'll each have an opportunity to answer this. But what has running, really, Sugar Paper has been both of your careers, right? So what has running specifically an entrepreneurial endeavor taught you about yourself? So not what have you learned about business, but what has this as an as sort of an exercise over the last 18 years taught you about who you are? Chelsea, you start. Oh, that's a big question. Yeah. I mean, it's been the most challenging thing I've ever done. I think uh, it's, it's really, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah. And so, you know, Jamie actually gave me this advice the other day. She said, you can only do what you can do. So sometimes you have it and sometimes you don't. And I think it maybe made me a better parent, which is a Mm. weird thing because it feels like we've been in charge of a really important thing for a really long time, Mm -hmm. Um, which is how I feel about my children. I'm in charge of two really important things 
for every hour of the day. It taught me about loyalty, friendship, empathy, understanding. I mean, it's been, it's, it's, it's way bigger than someone who doesn't own a business would probably understand. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie, how would you answer that? Well, I'm laughing because my daughter's vocabulary words for her test tomorrow, one of them's perseverance. And so I think that, I think the number of years and challenges and things has taught me that I have more endurance than hmm. I know and that I'm capable to figuring things out. So compared to where when we started – you know, we always thought yeah. somebody else had the answer. And now I think we're like, we we know a lot for what we do. Yeah, absolutely. I also find that many times entrepreneurs have had to flex muscles where they're in charge. Like we flex muscles in so many areas of life. You don't need to run a business to to gain strength in certain areas. But when it's all your responsibility, when you're the person that it lands on, when you're the person that's holding the vision for what's next, whether it's the design on a particular card or how you treat your employees, it's a different sort of thing. What would you say to our listener about sort of what they can anticipate if they're going to take on this entrepreneurial challenge. Chelsea. <laughs> well, I, I feel like, um, you know, we say this to the team often, but, uh, you know, you just have to be really comfortable with change. Mm. Yep. So that is just what it is, that you cannot be stubborn. You have to be flexible. The only thing that's constant is change. And so being comfortable living in that space is really, really important. I was going to have the same answer. The only constant is change. Yeah. And you guys and, had to deal with that in spades over the pandemic. Exactly. We had a whole forecast, a whole, all these projections, this plan, like all of this. We were like, First time we had ever been that organized and it all just went in the trash. Yeah. Well, but you, having that but, skill set to like yeah, be flexible and change was our biggest asset. Yeah. And then being able to go back to that muscle that was pre-exercised, right. um, you were able to get back to that really quickly. So because we want to focus this particular conversation on retail and sort of there's a lot that's being said. There was a lot being said about retail before the pandemic. A lot about it's dying. People aren't going to stores. We're living in a in an Amazon sort of culture. And then we have this pandemic that hits. People are in lockdown. And if they didn't shop online before, they sure were learning how to shop online during the last 18 months. What do you guys think as a result of the pandemic or otherwise? What do you think the landscape of retail is actually all about? What is it actually, what is actually happening in it? Because I, I for one, don't believe it's dead. So what is it? If it's not dead, what is it? How is it morphed? I mean, I would tell you, and it seems like such a retail buzzword, but it's all about experience. Mm -hmm. But it's not the way that that comes out so naturally. The experience is not about... Um, it's not gimmicky. Mm. 
An experience in a retail store, I think for us, is feeling seen. Mm -hmm. So part of the reason that Nordstrom, for example, is one of my retail heroes is because they are known for customer service, that you feel safe shopping there for many Mm -hmm. reasons of how you're treated. I think right now what we realized when retail went away is that online is extremely convenient, but it's not the same. Mm -hmm. And And it's time-consuming. You know, so I'm like, if I can go to a store and, you know, we we love this store market in our neighborhood and she's so great. She's like, try this on, try this on. This would be great on you. And when you're online, you're looking at things and you're like, I don't know if I like that or not. I've tried things that come and it's like way too short or isn't the quality I anticipated. Then I have to return it. So now I'm going back where I'm like, yes, for... Windex or certain things, remember it and order it. But for clothing and home items and things you want to experience, I'm going back the other way where I'm like, it's so much faster to go and see the quality, see it in person and know you like it. And, and have that human connection. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's connection. It's inspiration. It's like the pieces of life that make you feel alive. So mm-hmm. when I, I think that what's happening with retail now is that, y- yeah, if you're not good at it, you're shutting your doors. So if yeah. you're a bad retailer, then it's not going to work. But if you pour your heart into it, if you are passionate about it, if you care about the experience of feeling that your customers are people who matter, it's a completely different thing and people are loving it. I remember that first opportunity after lockdown to walk into a space and Mm. touch and feel things. It was just a reminder of how much it's actually not going away, how needed it was, at least for me. Yeah. I want to hit on something you just said, because you're right about the word experience and experiential marketing, experiential retail, everybody's talking about this. And you said, um, use the word gimmicky, Chelsea. And I want to sit on that for, or stay on that for a little bit, because I don't want our listeners to hear that what they need to do to survive in this landscape is have lots of ballooned events and cupcake parties. And right. It's not about that. It's so what is it about? I guess I'll ask you guys, the experts, when you talk about the experience of retail being so necessary and Jamie, you talked about this particular store where this person sort of you know, is bringing product to you and and bringing things to you that she probably knows that you would like. What is it that we need to be creating? What do you, what do, what is it meant or what does it mean to you when you say experience or experiential? Well, couple, couple different things. Yeah. Um, I think that's also a balance between science and Art because the retail store, if, if it can look beautiful and be an experience, but if it doesn't have all the different categories of cards or it doesn't have the best-selling mm. items that people want to gift every time or, you know, the inventory and the product isn't right, then the, the quality isn't there. That's also part of the experience. But I think like, you know, 
having environments that are beautiful, that feel fun to be in, that change. You're not looking at the same shelf every time you walk in. New product, flipping product, but be like being able to come in and feel inspired. Yeah. As a person. I'm, I'm giggling because Jamie is in charge of the buying of our stores and the turns of our stores. So listening to her, I 100% agree with that point of view. I'm in charge of the training of the people that we hire. And so I would say the experience also has to do in hiring post-pandemic is really challenging. Yeah. And so I think the experience has to do with the people who are standing in the store and yeah. who are representing the brand. Mm. And so just the other day, I had an email come through about two of the women that are running our Brentwood store, and they're relatively new to the brand. And the woman wrote that these two women just made her day. Uh-huh. And it's 100% the goal when we're hiring somebody to have women that understand that it's not their job to sell a card, it's their job to connect with people. Mm. And so we say a lot, we don't sell paper, we sell love. And it's that we're loving them, that we're seeing people, that we're trying to help them connect with people they love. And so the experience is coming back to being human. And being helpful. Uh, yeah. You're solving something for them. Which is the two things that you don't get online, right? So now yeah. you've really pulled the, the, you've differentiated the online experience from the in-person experience and you make it valuable for those people who are on the fence. Like, should I just go online and buy something? Because they can. You give them access to that versus do I go into the store, you've now made it worth their while, which I think is the the key that we want to pull out for people who are listening. That's that's what we mean. That's what you guys mean when you talk about the experience. Um, I want to go back really quickly to the fact that you're omni-channel. Now you've been in this business for 18 years and you are omni-channel as a result of those 18 years. You didn't start out that way. Let's say one of our listeners was able to reach out to you and say, okay, I have this concept for a X product and I'm not sure where to start. I, I'm not sure if I should wholesale, if I should be direct to consumer, if I should go ahead and invest in a brick and mortar. Like, I'm not sure where to begin. You don't know the product. We, we, we haven't uh, decided on, on what that product is. So it's, it's a it's a kind of wide open question, but given what you know about the landscape of retail, what's your advice to that person? Where should they begin? <laughs> you Chelsea. <stopped> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess I would say I'm, I'm a big believer in building the community first. Mm-hmm. So I would say, and I know this is maybe not the answer you're looking for, but I would say, take it to a school um, event and see if people buy it, right? Take it to a farmer's market. If you don't have excitement around the product right away, it might not be a viable product. So trying to buy ads on Facebook for a product people don't want to buy is an exercise in futility. I think one of the things when we started Sugar Paper, we didn't just open a store on a street, 
we started printing for friends and then friends sent that to people and then people saw it and people called us and asked if they would if we would print for them. So we had proof of concept on a very micro level. And then we knew, well, if we try this, there there are women who are really liking what we do. So is that, I mean... Yeah, I wasn't after a particular answer. And I actually really appreciate that because more and more there are opportunities to do almost like even trunk shows, like find somebody who would house your brand if they were to... Um, to invest in and, and purchase it for their own store and see if you can do some sort of a trunk show. Find places, depending on your product, you know, at a farmer's market or some sort of pop-up experience. There are locations now that are dying to get traffic in. So if you can help pull that traffic in for them, it's a great way for you to understand, one, your appetite for for being in a brick and mortar space, but also to understand how the consumer wants to consume and purchase your particular product or service. It's also an amazing opportunity for product development, right? So if you put your mm-hmm. put your product out and 10 people tell you, oh, I love this, but I wish it came in black, there's your yeah. answer. Yeah. So it's so valuable. An example, yeah. just the other day, we were in merchandising the store and we had discontinued place cards because mm-hmm. they weren't as performing like they used to perform. Yeah. That might have to do with the pandemic. but I was going to say, <laughs> maybe they will in a second. Um, but I think, five, I mean, it was a good five people came in asking for place cards. And had I not been in there, the requests would have fa- sounded different coming through an email like, oh, they're requesting place cards. Sure. And so we brought back place cards because that's an experience when you walk into a retail store, you should have the place card. So For, just, uh, for, for what we do. Yeah. It, yeah. We want to answer yes to that question. I, I'm like sitting here thinking about your question because I'm like, I, I don't know if there is a, a, like, I agree with what Chelsea said, but when I think of wholesale versus an online store versus a store, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a right place to start. They're so different. Um, yeah. A lot of brands have to have a website. So I guess having an online store is is probably smart, but Wholesale brands and direct-to-consumer brands, a lot of them do both now. But if, if you want to kind of test things out quietly, wholesale could be a good option. But that involves inventory and sure. distribution and, and yeah. shipping and things that are really time-consuming to figure out. So I'm just like trying to, in my head, go back and forth. Like, I, d- I don't know what I would recommend, but... I would recommend choosing one to start. Yeah. Choosing okay, so that's that's actually a, a good place for us to 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 start. So choosing one versus like, oh, if you could find the marriage of D to C and any one of the other ones, you would say start with one. And Jamie, would you say start with one just so you can focus on one or start with one because you're gonna learn so much um, that you may wanna pivot at some point. I think both. Like if if you start yeah. with a, a brick and mortar, you're going to want to, like Chelsea said, invest in that community, get to know yeah. um, who these people are, what their names are. And really like, you're going to learn so much from that. 
I don't yeah. know, Chelsea. I don't know. Like an online store too, they kind of go hand in hand. So I, I think it's different from when we started. I, I think it's interesting because a lot of my friends who have started DTC brands mm-hmm. are considering opening retail stores. And when I talk to them, it's a really interesting conversation because one of like DTC is very fast. It's very transactional. Yeah. It has very little to do with human interaction. You, you can humanize that as much as you want or can, but it's a very it's a transactional business. And so I've I've seen friends who have very successful online businesses open a brick and mortar and be utterly disappointed at mm. the results. But you have to realize, like you, when you're starting something, you need to know what it's for. So for a company that's, you know, doing millions of dollars in sales at DTC to open a brick and mortar, if the metric is your end of day sales, yeah. you might be disappointed, right? Because one store is open from 10 to 7 or 6 every day. And another one is global and the cash the register is, yeah. is ringing 24 hours a day. So trying to compare those two things using that metric is probably a, a heartache waiting to happen. But if the goal of opening a retail store is to connect with an audience or to tell your brand story or to have an amazing merchandising opportunity, well, now you're measuring a different metric, right? Yeah. So. It's a, it, I think it's a really interesting conversation, and I do think that accidentally Jamie and I have ha- had the opportunity to dance in many of these different places. But again, it was so accidental. We were so young, and we didn't have a whole lot of expectation attached to any of the outcomes. And now when we look at it, so every Monday we go through a spreadsheet, thanks to Jamie and her team's work where we look at all those different models and we we I can tell you immediately which one is financially the most important but that model might not be the best representation of the brand so you you really have to look yeah. at it from a from a lot of different perspectives to know what the importance of each of those are does that yeah. make sense It makes so much sense. And I so appreciate the distinction because we've asked this question of a few different people that we're interviewing in this retail series. And it's interesting, some that are strictly and right out of the gate, they're like a year in, uh, D to C would say for them, it's all about data collection and they need that connection with the consumer. But they're really looking to break out into a brick and mortar opportunity so they can do more experiential stuff, that they feel like the wholeness of the brand won't be complete until they're kind of two channels in. Others have said, we just can't go into wholesale yet because we haven't built up the brand enough for people to know how they're going to experience the brand or even how do we train other salespeople, let's say on a cosmetic floor, how to apply the product, what's so great about the product. Like we need to keep it in our brick and mortar. So a lot of it seems to be dependent on what the product is. And to your point, Chelsea, what is the goal and how are we measuring that goal? And um, no, that was brilliant. That was a brilliant distinction. And also, Netta, just to be, you know, candid as you're talking about that, I get like these 
pangs of embarrassment. I mean, we just did it. Like, (laughs) good, bad, or indifferent. Like, it was messy. We tried stuff. Like, there are things that will pop up on the internet, and I'm like, oh, did we really put that out in the market? But it taught us something. Sure. Sure. And that goes back to that earlier question about learning about yourself as an entrepreneur and and being willing to take those risks, because I'm sure there are things that you tried that you weren't sure about, that you were pleasantly surprised that worked a certain way in the same way that there were things that you tried and they became, you know, cringeworthy things. Um, And by the way, none of us would know what those things are, because to most of us, the brand looks very cohesive and like you guys have sort of figured it out from the from the beginning. I think a lot you of those might, things- You might not know, but we get a good giggle out of a lot of them. I mean, oh. <laughs> there are That's things good. that we find in sample drawers and the two of us are like, oh my God, Why I Why did we think that it. was okay? Yes. That's yes. good. It's good. It, it keeps things um, uh, playful and light at times, probably light in retrospect. What do you think the future looks like for- omni-channel retail brands. So when I ask that question, I'm really looking at, do you think, and really this goes into what you just, the distinctions you just made, Chelsea, do you think people will solely rely on retail for the experience, not the numbers, and people will rely on online for those numbers, and then D to C to create something that's a more curated in your home experience uh, that you're receiving this box that they're unpacking Chelsea uh, unpacking, excuse me, sugar paper in a, in a unique way. I don't know that answer. And I, the, the brands that are really interesting to me right now are finding ways to marry those two things Mm. Um, for a small business. That's very challenging. So if you're funded and you have a ton of money to pour into that, I'm, really amazed by it. So I was listening to a podcast recently where they were talking about, um, it's a retailer in Canada who you would go on their app and you would find like, in like dresses that you might be interested in. You would pick them out and then that message would get sent to the store. And when you arrive, those things are already in the dressing room ready for Mm. you to try on in your size. It's brilliant. So yeah. marrying those two experiences, I think, is is probably the next frontier for people who can figure that out. That's not on our radar because we still are very much a small business. Um, for us, I think the pandemic has helped us distinguish what is worth it and what mm. maybe is not worth it. So I think pre-pandemic, we had a plan to expand retail somewhat aggressively post-pandemic, we're having conversations about whether or not that's important or worth it. I think there are a lot of people that took this time to redefine Mm -hmm. what they want to do next because everything changed. So for example, sugarpaper.com was never our priority. It was always something that just lived in the background. As soon as our retail stores were required to be closed, sugarpaper.com became the priority quickly. And we were able to pivot and really look at that model in a way that we had never really looked at it. It's been super fun. And watching sales grow dramatically was a highlight of 2020. 
And so it's kind of like I say, it's it's like scrambled eggs now. Now we look at everything very differently than mm-hmm. we were set in our ways pre-pandemic. What would you say to that, Jamie? I don't I don't know. There's so much I am almost forgetting the question. Well, I, I think just what do you think for people who are looking at omni-channel as their sort of end goal? How do you think these different channels will work in concert with one another um, versus like you're choosing which one to go into or which three and they serve their their own purpose? How are they going to engage, do you think, if you had a crystal ball? How do you think each channel will engage with one another? To, to really represent the brand in, in total? Well, I think um, a little bit having an omni-channel helps create a brand versus mm-hmm. another such and such company. So mm-hmm. the fact that there are stores and online and wholesale, it's it's really like expansion of the brand. Mm-hmm. So I do think it it there's more brand presence with omni-channel brands. You know, I think in terms of manufacturing, obviously, if you're going to make X amount of SKUs and you can increase your MOQs and your costs because you're ordering more because you sell them to wholesale and at your store, like, so there is some economies of scale that can happen Mm -hmm. from having more Mm -hmm. sales channels. But getting all of that organized takes time and investment. So I I think once we've gotten our arms around it, it kind of all feeds itself, right? We learn what does well in our own stores. And we can talk about that on our website. We we know what to pitch to wholesalers because we want to sell what's successful. Yeah, We don't want people to buy something that they're going to get and it's not going to sell in their store. So I don't know. It's a it's a hard question. I feel like we go down a lot of different rabbit holes, but it is a hard question. And I think part of why I ask it is because I think so many people who are listening are trying to figure out how to enter the space and wh- where to begin. I think, Chelsea, to your earlier point, so many people are starting D to C. They think that's that's what the buzz is all about. That seems to be how they can develop that relationship directly with the consumer, collect data from the consumer. Wholesale seems to be secondary. It used to be a starting point. It used to be where a lot of people began. And I think people are really questioning that. Having said that, um, the distribution of your product can be really limited if you're D2C. If you only have 100 people on your mailing list, then that's only 100 people that you can say, hey, do you want this product in the beginning? versus wholesale where you're spending money on people who have distribution built in. They have two or three stores and you're doing that times how many ever stores you decide to go into. So I think I just want people to hear that there are lots of ways to enter the market. There are lots of interesting things that are happening in the market post-pandemic in retail that it's not Again, I keep using this this word of silver bullet or this phrase, but it's not it's it's not a done deal just because you start uh, D to C. It's not game over if you start brick and mortar. In fact, it, it can be quite the opposite. You know, this conversation is reminding me of, um, I was listening to the Business of Fashion podcast and they mm-hmm. interviewed Mickey Drexler. And right now he is helping run Alex Mill, 
And he also used to be at the helm of J. Crew and The Gap. So right. his experience, his reputation is built on these huge funded retail giants. And now he's running a small business. And it was so interesting to hear mm. a retail giant talk about running a company that has a budget, that has a limited number of colorways that they can afford in their most popular item. And I was just tickled listening to it because I've always idolized Mickey Drexler. I love his style. I love his approach. And, and having him be speaking to an experience that Jamie and I live every day, mm. it was just, it was fascinating to me because I always thought, wow, what would it be like to be this retail giant where you have no budget and you can make whatever you want. I don't know. I think it's a it's a really interesting um, yeah. dynamic. And also the idea of having limitations sometimes helps you make better choices. I was just going to say, when you have your hands tied, sometimes you make the best choice because not the sky isn't the limit. Right. And you you have to put that kind of best foot forward. For our listeners out there who are considering launching a retail brand or are stuck trying to grow one right now, what's some words of wisdom you would like to leave them with, Jamie? I mean, I guess it's it's commitment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, sticking with something, evolving, changing, endurance. I, I you know, I, I guess also too, like having a strong point of view. Yeah. Don't don't be everything for everybody. I feel like mm. that was like always at our core. Um, not sure if I I'm think, answering properly. No, well. you are. You are. I think, Jane, the the thing that I tell my friends who have DTC companies is you have to understand that retail is a commitment. So going back to what Jamie said, you have to unlock that store every day. You have mm. to have quarters. You have to have register tape. You have to have (laughs) light bulbs. I mean, it seems silly, but there isn't an app for that. This Mm. is like a real The credit card machine breaks. Yeah. Yeah. People call in sick or they quit with no notice. It's a completely different type of commitment. Your online store can run and you can be asleep. Your store cannot be open. And, and people are asleep. You have to, it, it's such a different type of commitment and it can be really challenging on Thanksgiving weekend when everyone wants to go hang out with their family and your store has to be open. So mm-hmm. it, it really is, you need to make sure that when you're going, like I was joking with our interior design team that designs the interiors of sugar paper stores. They're like, it's done before we open. And we're like, no, 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 you're done. But once we open, it's never done. It's now it's open and, and it's a commitment. Right. I, um, I have to believe that people who are listening are taking that into consideration because there is something very sexy about opening a brick and mortar store, having the physicality of the brand be present, being able to present that to the world. And I think what you're saying is something that people can sort of 
take to heart and say, what is my commitment? How, there are lots of ways to be a brand and to sell product. What is my commitment very specifically to the brick and mortar? And to be able to consider the Thanksgiving weekend um, scenario and how they would handle that. And the the broken credit card machine and hiring for people and all of those things. Yeah. And also going back to what Chelsea said earlier in terms of the people and the training and the experiences, mm. you can have a beautiful store, but not have the good experience. So with that comes payroll. Yeah. You know, <laughs> payroll. there's, there's yes. more people and, and more salaries that come with that. So sure. It's, it's well, a and we just talked about this with marketing, the idea that you can love a brand, like be so committed to that brand and walk into their retail store and have a terrible experience. And it changes your point of view. So it goes back to the commitment also being for making sure if you're going to open a store that the experience is good. And I will tell you one of the most heartbreaking pieces of my job is when I find out that someone doesn't have a good experience at Sugar Paper because we are so committed to having a delightful experience. And so you don't get to control every single interaction and every single employee. And it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. Somehow though, you guys have eked out with an amazing brand that has stood the test of time. I so appreciate all that you've shared here. And I think the way you're empowering people who are listening to really consider everything that you're saying, even in the places that you've hesitated and you've said, well, that depends on this, or, you know, they really have to look at this. I think it gives people pause to really think about how do I want to enter the market or grow into the market? Or is it time for me to pivot? Have I been in the wrong place. Thank you guys for that. Before we let you go, and we've done this with you before, but we just have these last five questions that we want to ask. And just quickly, if you could each answer, and I'll I'll lead with who should start um, to answer so you know who who I'm looking at. So Chelsea, the number one trait an entrepreneur must possess? The ability to pivot. The ability to pivot. And Jamie? Endurance. Endurance. Okay. Um, And then an app that you each use daily or regularly to kind of get through your workday. I mean, I use Instagram a lot for buying and and product and what's in the market. So you're using it to kind of scroll through and see what people are buying or you're actually like DMing people and like making connections? I I find that I find new brands through Instagram. Um, that we then, you know, will go on and see if they wholesale and bring it into the shop. So it really like keeps me in the loop of what's on in the market. It's like you're window shopping on Instagram. That's awesome. Chelsea. Zoom. Yes. (laughs) Sadly. Uh, Yes. Yeah. Zoom. Zoom. What would we do without Zoom? Um, And then when you guys started, so go back 18 years ago, as soon as you had a little bit of money, what was the first um, job that you hired out? Retail, Ashley yeah. Gas. I know. I was <laughs> oh, say funny. Ashley Gas store help. Do you know where Ashley is today? Yeah, she just had a baby. <laughs> oh, that's so great that you guys are still in touch. That's awesome. And then, 
we're going to see if you guys can toe the line here because there's a there's a common answer and and I'm ready to say it's a common answer among all entrepreneurs but we'll see sweet or salty snacks Jamie salty yeah Chelsea sweet <laughs> That's why we work, Netta. It's why we work. She's blonde. I'm brunette. Okay, okay. But I do really like both. And okay. I but no, I'm both, not going to let you take it both back. Both are a problem. <laughs> both are a problem. We have had everyone say salty in this season. And so I was like, oh my gosh, is salty related to being an entrepreneur? But I'm going to let this one slide, Chelsea, because you guys are a team. So, of course, you need the yin and the yang for this to work. So I'm still going to see if I can hold, I can um, hold, if this holds true as we end up this season. You guys know uh, that this podcast is called Liberty for Her, and you've already answered the question in um, episode 88 on what liberty means to you. I'm going to ask this in a slightly different way. What has starting this venture, what has it done to liberate you, Jamie? Um, independence. Mm. And is that like independence in the way you think? Is it financial independence? Is it being able to create something? Probably both, right? Creative yeah. independence. Um, you know, we didn't in the beginning, but now we have some flexibility to our schedule. We're, you know, we're able to be moms and work. And so kind of doing all the things we love, even though it's a juggle, it's not perfect, but you know, yeah. Okay. That's a good one. Chelsea, what is, how have you been liberated in this entrepreneurial venture? I have options. Mm. And those options are about the way you spend your time, about how you exercise your creativity. What are those options? All of that, right? Yeah. Um, how I spend my time, how we choose to intersect with our work, how we, what we want to make, what we want to put in the world, the voice, the, yeah. all of the things. Like I, we, I, I think being the boss is really challenging. Being the boss allows you to make those decisions without yeah. running them past somebody. Yeah. Except for Jamie. Except for Jamie. (laughs) You guys, thank you. Thanks for once again taking the time to um, share your story and impart some wisdom and some practical advice to our listening audience. I so appreciate it. I so appreciate what you guys have done and what you've built and the intentionality of building sugar paper and of um, building a team and a quality product and something that surprises and delights us at every turn. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having us. Of course, of course. And Liberty listeners, thank you for your time. And I hope this episode, like many, um, have inspired you to consider your own possibilities. Until next week, see you then. Bye. Liberty For Her is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Liberty For Her on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty For Her is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham, and music by Jordan Flowers.